Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Chris, you're killing me here. I expected this podcast three months ago. What's going on with you? Uh, This is the fourth episode in our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, and we are very excited to have a special guest with us today, Jason Kleberg of the Force 5 podcast. Welcome to the show, Jason. What's going on, guys? Throw some plates in the fire. I'm here. (laughs) Jason hosts an outstanding (laughs) podcast, on which I have, in fact, guested on. Uh, Jason, for everyone out there who might not be familiar with Force 5, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Force 5 is a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air, and I get a different cool guest every every show, and they always pick the topic, which is kind of fun. And you were on. We did uh, top five conspiracy films. Oh, it was a ball. It was it was fantastic. I, I still have a list of like, because uh, I, I made it a master list of like, 30 films that I then whittled it down. Now, I didn't watch all of those, but I watched a lot of them and then, you know, then whittled it down to the five. Getting to five is really hard. Yeah. Like there's usually one or two, you know, are going to be on there. And then it's like a lot of horse trading to get down to five. Yeah, there's a lot of self-negotiating. It's it's tough. There's uh, definitely some regret every time after I do a show where I think, well, maybe that should have been on the list. But, you know, that's part of the fun of, of trying to narrow it down to five and it's it's interesting. You never know what your guest is going to come up with because I've gone into lists where I say, oh, well, if this is too obvious. Of course, this this has to be on the list or this is definitely going to be in their list. And and uh, it never turns out that way. Every, there's so many movies out there and somebody's got, you know, a cool experience you don't have with one of those movies. And that's why it sticks with them. Uh, it's yeah, it's a fantastic show. And, and the, the the breadth of topics that you have, I mean, how you continue to come up with, you know, we got to, you know, we have like three or four or five maybe topics a year and then we run them for for a number. <laughs> we you have you have a new topic every two weeks and it's it's I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it gets tough. There are some where where it almost feels like I can't participate. And then there are some where it's like there's way there's just too many choices for just five. But it's it's a lot of fun. And then every episode has fake ad, like a fake sponsor, which is always fun. And then there's reviews and drafts and yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. Oh, yeah. I, we Rob and I have done the uh, the draft on your Patreon, which was a yeah. whole lot of fun. We did the Brad Pitt draft. Oh, uh, the date that will live in infamy. Oh, my I God. Was, I was destroyed. I, I'm not surprised I was destroyed. <laughs> Rob, you went with Johnny Swade of all of the of all of the Brad Pitt movies that he's ever made. And Johnny. Johnny Swade ends up on your top five. It's madness. Have you seen it? No, no. There you go. Then how do you know? (laughs) The problem is nobody else saw it. And and those are the people that were voting for the winner. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, today we'll be talking about one of the most successful and well-loved adventure films of the 1980s, as well as its sequel. From 1984, this is Romancing the Stone. I'm getting out of this jungle dump. I am fed up to here with this treasure hunt business. Yeah. Ira, you miserable worm, you lied to me. You said she was a city girl. Out of her element. Just get her in the map and bring them back. Piece of cake. Piece of cake, my butt. What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. (laughs) 
First of all, guess who else is here? You're dead right, Solo. What? Secondly, she's got herself a partner. Who likes shooting holes and everything. The minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is four hundred dollars. Three hundred and seventy-five in traveler's checks. Not a deal. That's just the beginning of what's going on down here. Romancing the Stone was the brainchild of writer Diane Thomas, who wrote the script in the late 1970s while she was waitressing at the Coral Beach Cantina in Malibu. After working on the script for more than a year, she sent it to her agent, and in one of those inspirational Hollywood tales, it sold to Columbia Pictures in less than a week. Although the film would eventually be made by 20th Century Fox. That's, so it, it, it had a development process that it, while it started its development before Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, it wouldn't go into production until after. And I have to think the success of Raiders and that kind of adventure movie, uh, even though this is a bit different, but that kind of adventure movie, uh, you know, led to the, the, green, the final green lighting of, of the picture. Yeah, I have serious questions about how she had an agent pitching this script to Hollywood before she even had this thing written. Well, that is that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> a waitress with an agent? Come on. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Uh, after that, Diane Thomas was hired by Steven Spielberg's company Amblin, where she worked on the film that would become Always a few years later, as well as a prospective third Indiana Jones film uh, that was ended up not being the direction they went. She was working on uh, the Haunted House Indiana Jones movie that Spielberg didn't want to end up. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. Cool. What? Yeah. Diane Thomas is a genius. I knew it. <laughs> That would have been amazing. Apparently, that was one of the ideas kicked around for both the second and third indie movies. And Spielberg was always kind of against it because he had done Poltergeist relatively recently and thought it might end up being too similar. Poltergeist with Indiana Jones, I'm in. Oh, absolutely. Tragically, Diane Thomas's life was cut short when she was killed in a car accident a year and a half after the release of Romancing the Stone. Uh, ironically, in the car that Michael Douglas bought her as a thank you for writing the movie. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. Ouch. That's a, yeah, that is, it's, it's a, it's a tough one. And you know, it's, it's one of those inspirational Hollywood stories and then just absolute Hollywood tragedies. Uh, the film was also a key one in the career of Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis had directed previously had directed two films, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars, neither of which were box office successes. As we mentioned earlier in this series, he co-wrote, along with Bob Gale, the Steven Spielberg film 1941, one of the director's rare commercial and critical disappointments. But it was the success of Romancing the Stone that directly paved the way for Zemeckis to make Back to the Future the following year. Romancing the Stone stars Kathleen Turner as romance novelist Joan Wilder, Michael Douglas as bird hunter Jack Colton, and Danny DeVito as Ralph, a thief and smuggler who, along with his cousin Ira, takes Joan's sister hostage in order to get a map to a location of a giant emerald called 
El Corazon, or The Heart. Uh, and it's funny, the studio apparently had no confidence in this movie, even after they screened it, so much so that Zemeckis was preemptively fired from his next directing job, Cocoon. Yeah, it's he was, he was going to direct Cocoon, and he was fired before this movie came out, and then the movie ends up being a huge hit, and 20th Century Fox's most successful movie of 1984. I, I would love to Exorcist for Cocoon. I know it's not possible, but <laughs> I, I, like the, the Ron Howard version's great, but I would love to see the Zemeckis version. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, uh, Fox's number two movie of 1984, Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, Deborah Winger was the filmmaker's choice, original choice for Joan Wilder. Uh, and famously, numerous actors were considered for Jack Colton, including Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Christopher Reeve, and Sylvester Stallone, who turned it down to do Rhinestone. That a boy. And eventually the role went to Michael Douglas, who's already a producer on, on the film. Uh, and Romantic Stone mixes Indiana Jones-style adventure with the DNA of a romantic comedy. And in some ways, it's very different from Raiders, but it captures a lot of that same adventurous spirit. And like many of the romantic comedies we talked about in our Get Me Another Harry Met Sally series, a lot of Romancing the Stone rests on the chemistry of Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. But not exclusively, because there's some first-rate adventure stuff going on here, uh, which is definitely uh, definitely also a factor. Yeah, it's I, I, I hadn't seen this movie in a long, long time. I had certainly seen it. Um, but... It's terrific. I really like it. You know, it's 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 a really good light adventure. Yeah, I agree. I um I had not seen it before, and that's one of the reasons why I chose this double features because I had not seen either one of these. I had really heard very little about them except that they were Indiana Jones kind of knockoffs, and I actually think that it's less the the first one anyway is much less of an Indiana Jones knockoff and more of a throwback to swashbuckler films of, you know, yeah. the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the the biggest difference uh between this and uh an Indiana Jones is that, you know, this isn't his movie, it's hers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, 100%. Like, what, if, what if Raiders was a lot funnier and it was Marion's story is the you know, the, the base point. And it's, uh, that, that's kind of the Rosetta stone for everything for, for both of the two movies. Uh, and it is, and also she is, does not start as a capable adventurer, but has to grow into it. Yes, um, absolutely. Also highly different. Yeah. Rare, Marion's Marion's capable right from the off. As we talked about when we talked about Raiders, I mean, she's not as capable as Indy because Indy's Indy, but she's pretty capable in her own regard from the jump. Um, you know, that, that, that scene where she, you know, the opening scene where they introduce her in the drinking contest, it's, it's absolutely, but, but Joan's quite different. And I want to just go back a little bit because we start out with this, this opening sequence that I think is now fairly iconic with, um, like Raiders, it's a kind of a short movie unto itself. Uh, this one literally straight out of a romantic adventure novel. In the Old West, we have Angelina, a woman whose face is perpetually hidden, and she faces down a villain who wants to get more than just money or treasure from her. And she successfully gets the drop on him, and she kills him with a knife, and then meets up with her one true love, Jesse, whose face we also don't see. And he takes out a few more bad guys, and they live happily ever after. And then we cut to Joan Wilder crying as she finishes, emotional as she <laughs> finishes her latest novel. And it's a, it's a great opening sequence. Um, 
I got to say, I want to pause here and mention the score by Alan Silvestri because this is one of it wasn't his first score, but it was one of his first big ones and his first with Robert Zemeckis. And I feel like this is Alan Silvestri's Battle Beyond the Stars. Like I kept noticing <laughs> bits of music that was would be in later scores, including the one he'd do immediately after this, Back to the Future. Yeah, I noticed the score too. I I really like the music in this entire series, actually. But uh, the the opening scene, man, when it starts, I had to double check the box because it, it did not seem like a PG movie at first, and no. even like a PG movie for the eighties. I mean, you get breasts on screen, you get uh, talk about rape, you get somebody stabbed or uh, or shot right away, both stabbed and shot. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. It's something. And then we cut to Joan in her apartment. And that scene with her there is so good during the the opening credits because it it does a great job of establishing. She's getting ready to meet her publisher. And it does a great job of all these little bits of business establishing who she is. And they, they make her late for the meeting, which has an interesting effect of sort of putting her on the defensive early. And I was thinking about it. I was like, Zemeckis does the same thing in Back to the Future. Like Marty's late for school and he's on the back foot as a consequence. Yeah, that's a good point. We got to talk about throwing the plates into the fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. I I actually wrote a note. I'm like, someone's going to have to clean that up. Like, it's yeah. like, what is like, the purpose of that? that? What was what who was happening that? there? She's celebrating. Obviously, she's celebrating with her cat. She pulls out the the, the good tuna for it. And then she, she pulls just starts out the good tuna. Chucking plates into the fireplace? Is that a tradition I'm unaware of? Well, I'm going to go deep uh, conspiracy theory on Romancing the Stone and Joan Wilder right here. Uh, Only half joking. I wonder if the part where her Greek ancestry was cut, uh, Wilder, totally not a Greek name, but, uh, you know, the the plate tossing in a time of celebration for a big event. uh, And then in Jewel of the Nile, not to jump too far ahead, but there is talk of going to Greece in the boat. That's true. As if he thought that she would be happy about it. Um, Now there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. So I wonder (laughs) if she's if Joan Wilder is secretly Greek. Yeah. Well, she hmm. could have had a Greek mother and, a, and, a, and an Anglo father with the Wilder name, yeah. could have, or it could have been forced to change his name when, when he came to the United States, uh, like, you know, like Vito Andolini. It could be her pen name. Yeah, oh, pen it, could, name. it could be her I pen mean, name. She's a romance novelist. So. That's true. Although I think her sister's also Wilder, although I'm not sure I'm not sure if they get the sister's, the, 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 the sister's last oh, name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I like the, I like the, the sub, the, like, I, I, I think that's, She's Greek now, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> or else she's just a vandal. <laughs> she, she's, I don't, honestly, it's, it was the strangest thing. <laughs> Joan is someone who, on the surface, is completely unprepared for the adventure she faces. But she's drawn into this South American treasure hunt when she is sent a map by her recently murdered brother-in-law. And after she comes home to find her apartment ransacked, she receives a phone call from her sister, who has been kidnapped by smugglers looking for the map that Joan now has. Uh, and she's instructed to take that map to Cartagena, Colombia. Thankfully, I know how to pronounce it because they say it so many times in the movie. Uh, and what Joan doesn't realize is the man who ransacked her apartment and the ones who have kidnapped her sister are not the same. There are, in fact, two parties interested in the map. Ralph, played by Danny DeVito, and his cousin Ira, played by Zach Norman, are the ones who've kidnapped Joan's sister, Elaine. Ira seems obsessed with the crocodiles in the area. He has like a line that he repeats over, look at those snappers, and it will be important later. 
to look at those snappers. Yeah, yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, Elaine, by the way, is played by 80s stalwart and Robert Zemeckis' then-wife, Mary Ellen Trainer. Not only can Trainer be seen in this film, but she's the mom in a film we'll talk about later in this series, The Goonies. She's also in Die Hard and Ricochet, playing the same character, because those movies share a universe. She's in Scrooge, she's in The Monster Squad, and she's in all four lethal weapons as the police psychiatrist. The second party is Zolo, the man who ransacked Joan's apartment and killed her landlord. Uh, he is a colonel in the Colombian military and is also pursuing the treasure that, that the map leads to. And there's a great moment. She's getting to leave. She's, she's like, I can't do this, but she, she's going to I'm going to do it anyway, where her publisher, Gloria, played by Holland Taylor, you know, says, you're not up to this, Joan, and you know it. And that the thing about the character is she's not up to it, but she goes anyway. The start of her journey. Yeah. And I just, uh, this is a movie, I want to talk about Holland Taylor for a second here. Oh my God, because, yes. She's great. Uh, she is fantastic in this. And th this to me is, you know, we'll we'll get a whole bunch of it, and especially with, with uh, you know, Jack and Joan. But uh, Gloria is a very minor character who's really just a little bit at the beginning of the movie. And then... The very little bit at the end. She's, yeah, She's yeah. in the, one of the, the very oh, last scenes. the... Yeah. Uh, but in any case, um, it, the kind of character that could just be there to move the plot along, and, and look, she is, but um, the character is written with just such great personality, and then Holland's performance is, it's so hard to be funny as the, the straight woman, uh, you know, especially uh, opposite Kathleen Turner doing kind of her, you know, what, um, you know, adorable dork kind of, a, it's not yeah. quite a, a, a Lucille Ball, Jerry Lewis type performance, but it's trending that direction. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, this is a movie where th the story is pretty good and, you know, all the beats work and all of that, but you get these little treats along the way, usually in the form of the characters you meet along the way. Uh, it, it feels like you have little episodes as you go through it where you get treated to this this fun character, this crazy character. Absolutely. And it's it's one of the things that I love most about the movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's one of the things definitely. that I think the sequel is really lacking is are those interesting characters that you meet along the way, whereas the first one, yeah. I mean, we'll get to it, but uh, one of my favorite characters doesn't pop in until halfway in the movie. Oh, I know I know the one you mean. He's he's fantastic. Yeah. We'll 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 get to that. It's 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 so good. And it's funny because I think this this movie, even though we're three guys talking about it, I think this movie has a strong appeal to women. Um, and I, I know I, I know Rob, your your wife is a big fan of this movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh and when I when I was discussing this with her, <laughs> and I was uh I'd rewatch re we rewatched it together, and I, you know, she knows we're gonna be talking about it on the podcast coming up. She's like, Oh, it's great. I was like, Yeah, it's really good. She's like, It's great. And it got to where she started questioning me and came to the uh, you know, realize that while I do really love Romancing the Stone, I do think that Raiders of the Lost Ark is a greater movie. And then she was just, she couldn't believe it. She's like, what? <laughs> yeah, she's like, you're such a man. Yeah, and Rob is texting me during yeah. this like, my wife is oh, yelling yeah. at me for not loving Romancing the Stone enough. <laughs> Lovingly yelling at me. <laughs> Lovingly, absolutely. Yelling. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, but um, and you know she she had some good points, uh, some of which I'll be passing along as my own thoughts because that's what we men do. Well, yeah. Um, yes, you know. 
But um, I've got a little a little Jack in me as well. Uh, but it's just the bird watching. Really. Uh, but but yeah, no, she she loves this movie as much as Raiders. And I think um, the rom-com world from what uh, what Jen Howell was saying, I think yeah. that, that is also a uh, a view there as well. But I, I do love the movie. I think one of the things about this film that it, it's it's one of the first movies we've watched, you know, for this series that really captures the pace of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like it moves, it moves and it moves quick. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't waste a lot of time. And it, it has, it's, it's like, you know, something like high road to China had a more leisurely pace that felt more at home in the seventies than in the eighties by the time it was made. Whereas here it's like, now you're firmly post Raiders in terms of how the movie is constructed and how the movie you know the pace at which it moves, and the fact that Zemeckis was a was a Spielberg protege, I'm sure contributes to that a little bit. Yeah, not only does it move in in the pace of the action, but it also moves in the pace of the jokes. There's a lot of really snappy yeah. dialogue in here that mm-hmm. is really really fun, and you are never going to be bored while watching this movie. That's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Joan uh, Joan is followed to Columbia by Zolo. And he ends up directing her to the wrong bus after she gets off the plane. So instead of heading to Cartagena, she ends up deep in the jungle. And Joan is just completely out of her element. She ends up distracting the bus driver and causing it to collide with a truck laden with bird cages. The other passengers just walk away. <laughs> except yeah, for Zolo. They're just they're just going. They're like, oh, another bus will be uh, somewhere, and they're just walking away. And except for Zolo, who threatens Joan because she he knows that she has the map or believes she has the map, and uh, and and that is when we introduce Jack Colton, rare bird hunter, who isn't quite the White Knight that Joan writes about in her books. Yeah, he continues your uh, your soldier of fortune trend with these films. Yes. <laughs> 80s, everybody was a soldier of fortune in the 80s, man. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, crocodiles and quicksand, it's all there. I mean, you know, he's no JT Striker cuz that's a whole JT Striker's a whole other bag. But you know, he's he's got a certain he's got a certain flair about him. I love the haggling scene. Please, I need your help. That's my new career. It's very lady. Lady, half a year's work just flew south for the winter, all right? My Jeep is totaled. In about five minutes, everything I own in the world is going to be wet. So can you lighten up, please? I really don't have the time. I'll pay you. You don't understand. It's a matter of life and death. If I don't get to my How much? Fifty dollars? Oh, shit. Well, you, you said you just lost everything you owned. Not my sense of humor. Well, I'll pay you $100. $200. I'll do it. For five. What? I'll pay you $250. Now, I ain't cheap. I can't be had. My minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. Will you take 375 in traveler's checks? American Express? Of course. Not a deal. It's kind of a meet-cute. I mean, in, in the context of this movie, it's as meet, it's a meet-cute, basically. Yeah, I actually love his, his role as Jack Colton. And I'm 
primarily somebody who grew up with Michael Douglas in really smarmy business suit roles, like your Wall <laughs> yeah. Streets and your Fatal Attractions and your Basic Instincts, and to see him in something like this, where he genuinely looks hot, and he he's kind of this um, what would you even call him? He's kind of like this just opportunistic soldier of fortune. I thought it was really refreshing. I wish he would have done more roles like this. He's very roguish. That's what I would. He's, yeah, he's a rogue. Yeah, that's a great way to yeah. describe it. I, I think I think he's a bad boy, but I could probably change him. You know, <laughs> I think he's just he's real. He's real close. This know? was one of his like Michael Douglas's first big film roles. Like he had been in movies before, in particular ones that he had produced, like The China Syndrome. But he was primarily known as a TV actor in the 70s on a show called The Streets of San Francisco, where he was the young cop opposite Carl Malden uh, as the older cop. And this was the movie that really kind of made him a movie star. And then after that, you start to get Wall Street and, uh, and, and you know, Fatal Attraction, as you mentioned, and, and numerous other, you know, eventually Basic Instinct uh, and so on. Um, yeah, it's it's a really it's a good role for him, and yeah, I I would like to have seen him do more of them. Uh, and and to be perfectly honest, Jewel of the Nile doesn't quite satisfy that. Nah, nah. Yeah, well, and and we'll get to that half of it. But here in Romancing the Stone, Jack and Joan's uh, relationship and their you know relationship arc is, I think, just perfect for me. In that, look, they are kind of they don't trust each other in the beginning they're not exactly at cross purposes but they're certainly not on the same page and uh you know they are both you know kind of you know get digs in at each other but it all for whatever reason and i you know i guess it's just zemeckis and michael douglas and, and especially kathleen turner it all just seems so fun right I, I i don't think anyone's a jerk i don't think anyone's you know being you know irredeemable or right. anything like that. And it's, it's fun to see them snipe at each other. Uh, and I still believe it down the road in this movie when they start to fall for each other. Yeah. Well, we have a whole sequence in the town with the thing. We'll get to that in, in a bit, but there's a nice it, classic eighties mid movie dance sequence. Um, Jack and Joan are pursued by Zolo and his men, all the while being followed by Ralph, Danny DeVito's character, who's kind of on this parallel track from the movie. There's not a whole lot of interaction until later, but he's he's always kind of there. And, you know, it's a sort of classic Danny DeVito role. Like, it's it's kind of perfect for him. It really is. It's him just rolling around in mud half the time. <laughs> <laughs> um they spend the night in the wreckage of a crashed drug smuggling plane where they burn bundles of marijuana to keep warm. We get a night, we get some nice <laughs> moments. We learn that Jack captures and sells birds in order to save up for a boat so he can sail around the world. Um, we get a bit where they find like this old bunch of magazines. I love this. And Jack voices disappointment on reading that the Doobie Brothers broke up. And the film was made in 84, it's set in 84, and the Doobie Brothers broke up in 82. So it gives you an idea of how long the plane's been there, but it also does a nice job of giving you an idea of how long Jack has been out of touch with things and down in Columbia. Don't worry, folks, the Doobie Brothers reformed in 1987. So don't worry about that. I actually really like the scene in the plane. Um, there's also a theory online that Jack didn't uh didn't find the gator at the end but rather went back to the plane and sold all the drugs in it to uh to make his small fortune which sounds <laughs> really? kind of funny 
I mean, he does say in this scene that he had uh, done some of that work before. So who knows? That is a that is a conspiracy theory. On <laughs> you never you can leave it to the internet to 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 drag a conspiracy theory out of even romancing the stone. My goodness, indeed. Print the legend. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, Jack and Joan make their way to a small town that at first doesn't seem terribly friendly to strangers. Uh, they are told that the only car in town is owned by a man named the Bellmaker, which leads to them knocking on his door and being greeted by a gun in their faces. Uh, that is until the Bellmaker, a man named Juan, realizes that he is in the presence of his favorite author, Joan Wilder. Ah, senor, buenos dias. Necesitamos to you, no, Well, you speak English. Oh, that's that's great. Uh, we understand that you have a car. We would like to rent it or buy it. We have to get to a town. What do you call this I'm living in? A pigsty? Uh, no. No, this is lovely. It's... Hit the road. Oh, amigo, you don't understand. Uh... Hit the road. Senor, I... Vaya con Dios, gringo. It's cool. It's cool, it's... Oh. Okay, John Wilder, write us out of this one. John Wilder? John Wilder? Vision Wilder? You are John Wilder, the novelist? Yes, I am. I read your books. I read all your books. Come in. Este es Juanita Wilder, la que escribe las novelas que le leo los sábados. Juanita. Le damos la bienvenida, ¿verdad, muchachos? Juanita. Huésped, Juanita. Juanita. Come in. Adiós, Come in. amiga. I can't believe Adiós. you're here. John Wilder. I've been reading your books all these years. I'm so honored to have you here. I can't believe it. Welcome to my home house. And this scene is just a delight. Yeah, I think you you alluded to knowing who I was talking about. It is Juan the Bellmaker. I think this is hilarious in this. And, you know, it's one of those moments in a screenplay where you don't know how they're going to get out of this situation. And what happens is something that you would never expect. This ruthless drug lord in the middle of the jungle is Joan Wilder's biggest fan, pulls him in. Uh, a classic line where he's trying to take care of Joan and he's like, get the door to Michael Douglas's Jack. And, <laughs> you know, and, and he looks on like seriously, but it's one of those moments where all of a sudden he, Jack knows he has no control and this ball is in her court in, entirely. Yeah. And uh, Juan, an amazing performance by uh, who, Alfonso Arau. Yes. Who I recognized because, uh, and clearly this was the template role that got him another role two years later yes. as El Guapo the in Three Amigos. The infamous villain <laughs> yes. El Guapo in the 1986 classic Three Amigos. He was also the director of films like for uh, like Water for Chocolate and A Walk in the Clouds. Uh, and it's just like, I hadn't seen this in long enough, in a long enough time that I had forgotten that bit. Like I just didn't remember it because it had been decades since I last saw it. So I was just so genuinely surprised and delighted when he's like, the Joan Wilder, <laughs> you know, and let's hang out. I love the let's somehow the line let's hang out stood out to him like that's so great. Like it's just it's just fantastic. And then there's the small twist, of course, where they say, yeah, he's got the only car in town. And then they get there and he's like, oh, they must have been talking about my my mule or my donkey or whatever. And 
<laughs> That's what his car is called. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's, he does get them out because Zolo is, is still on their, their tail. Uh, and they do escape. They take refuge in a small town where a festival is taking place. And that leads to the prolonged dance sequence that only 80s movies can do and not feel out of place. You know, and Zemeckis would do the same thing with the fish under the sea dance in Back to the Future a year later. Oh, sorry, the enchantment under the sea dance. <laughs> uh, to call this a dance sequence is to miss a, a whole heap of heat. Yeah. There is so much Michael heat. Michael Douglas. Oh my god, Kathleen Turner. This is this is not uh, this is not like a fun dance sequence. This is some getting down oh, yeah. uh, romancing it's oh. not called adventuring the stone people it is romancing <laughs> the stone and you will feel the heat in the sequence and uh and again flipping the script uh michael douglas is the one who is sexualized in this thing he yeah. is the peacock to be stared at and ogled uh not in the way that men ogle women uh but even still, and look, his hair's fantastic in this. His uh, hair is uh, amazing. The whole movie, but in amazing. this sequence in oh, particular, yeah. like, yeah. Um, but in any case, and, you know, they they have, what, the cutting uh, back and forth between the sexy dancing with DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's sexier than that? Who doesn't want Danny DeVito in the middle of their foreplay? And increasingly desperate, he's on like he's on the phone with his cousin Ira. He's got one of my favorite lines and pronunciations in any movie where he tells his cousin Ira, "I am not Tarzan," and puts the puts <laughs> <laughs> the M, Tarzan, and it's like I don't know why, but it's an hysterical way to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> um, and then the next day, Jack and Joan they 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 do sleep together that night, and the next day they set out to find. El Corazon themselves, and they steal a car, not realizing that Ralph is asleep in the back, which is hysterical. Yeah, and this is all part of the, uh, you know, Jack has kind of convinced Joan to go look for the stone rather than trying to take the map right. to get, because if you have the stone itself, you have all of the cards. and That's what they're after. There's a little bit of playing with the, is he wants, does he want to find the stone to then abscond with it himself or is it you know somewhat real advice because he's developing feelings for her and i i they, they play that tension i think nicely without overdoing it really yeah and he's doing things uh that seem like they could be either helpful or slick depending on what his intentions are so i think that tension is really played well absolutely like there's a there's a, the scene where they're in bed mm-hmm. and she like i think she agrees to go look for the stone at last and he's already hidden the map between the folds of the mattress and you see his hand reach down and take it out and put it back in her bag yep. so he's he's clearly he wants to get the stone himself no matter what because they'd established that there's a zero, a copy machine at the uh, hotel, so he was going to try and copy the map at some point, maybe. And yeah, I mean, it's it's all very interesting, um, and uh, you know, uh, and sweaty. <laughs> it is. Do hotels these days have Xerox machines big enough to copy entire maps? Yeah, the business center's really been downsized. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The next day, Joan and Jack set out to find the El Corazon, which the heart themselves, and uh, and and 
Ralph, they, they do. They follow the map and they find what is a massive heart-shaped emerald. And Ralph takes it at gunpoint. Like he Ralph, now Ralph gets into it, and but Jack is able to steal it back almost immediately when Zolo and his men show up. And this was the part of the movie I remembered really well. Like I remembered like the 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 military guys like driving over the hill and and Michael Douglas and and Danny DeVito and 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 Kathleen Turner are just like running down the hill. For some reason, that all stuck in my mind very vividly from the last time I saw this, which was probably the late 80s. Um, And they get separated on opposite sides of this river, which is really cool. And Jack, you know, he says he tells her to go to Cartagena and he'll meet her there. She has the map. He has the emerald. He says he'll meet her there. But can you trust him? This is a great scene with the, uh, the waterfall. They basically sit in a truck that goes over a waterfall. Yeah. Not smart to jump out of the truck mid waterfall dive. I think it looked like they were both going to get killed <laughs> at the bottom of that <laughs> water, but at the same time, a, a great scene. And you know, that, that that's the point where you have to wonder, is Michael Douglas going to show up in that town or is he going to be gone with that Emerald? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And uh, and she goes she goes to Cartagena. Um, we see her waiting at the hotel, but Jack is not showing up. She's then told that the exchange for the map for her sister will happen in an old fort by the sea. And I, I want to point out one thing I noticed in this that I thought was really odd. They cut back periodically in the movie to Ira and and Joan's sister, and it seemed like Joan's sister and Ira were really getting along, like. Like, very friendly for a kidnapper and kidnappy. I don't know if there's a conspiracy theory, like, about that online. <laughs> she's clearly not in on, on it, but she, like, she's being charmed by Ira, which is bizarre. Well, maybe she had a thing for alligators. I guess. I mean, look at those snappers. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> you must say that line. So, I mean, it's amazing. It's very friendly for a kidnapper, kidnappy. Uh, I don't know, maybe the, the, uh, the Helsinki syndrome. Uh, from Helsinki, Sweden, Finland. But I, I always got the impression totally <laughs> in the movie that, uh, you know, Ralph and Ira are not necessarily near, it, it, they're not as dangerous as the other guys, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they did the kidnapping, but they, and look, I'm still fuzzy on all of this, they weren't the ones who killed her the, the sister's husband, right? I don't no, think so. I think that was Zolo. Yeah, that's what I so And they just were opportunists who took advantage of the situation kind of a thing. Yeah, that's how I took it. I took them as pretty harmless. Like, I I would like to believe that if they got the map, they would give the sister back. Well, you have yeah. that moment in when when she goes to the fort for the exchange. And and there's a there's a moment of really, really great tension where, you know, she's got the map and Ira has has the sister. And, you know, he's like, put it down. Uh, I, you know, if you've pulled a fast one, if this is a fake, you know, I, you know, he goes and he pulls out a little like glass for, you know, puts a glass in his eye to take a look at it. And he determines that it's genuine. And he says, and it's almost menacing at first. And then it changes like you and your sister can go. (laughs) But then Zolo shows up. Jack shows up and and what we realize is Jack has been captured by Zolo. Both Jack and Ralph have been captured by Zolo. And then we get to sort of the climactic conclusion of this movie. The climactic conclusion in you mean a uh, a sailboat going through the streets of New York City? Well, we haven't gotten to that yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
and turning in a book on time. Yeah, turning in a book of... on time, absolutely. Well, we get Jack has the emerald and he's hiding it in his pants, specifically in his crotch, and um, a safe place. And he kicks it. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, but he kicks it out into the air, and Zolo grabs it, and then a crocodile jumps up and bites his hand off with the emerald with it. And again, you come back to that line, look at those snappers. And the whole climax scene of this is illustrates how adept Robert Zemeckis is at escalation. You have these moments when things look like they might turn in the character's favor, and then they don't. And it's really good. And it's honestly, it feels like that some of the the basic elements of that were then were then refined for the climax of Back to the Future, where things that could go right then don't go right. Yeah, and can we talk about that uh, that alligator bite on the arm? That is a gnarly <laughs> scene. <laughs> that was his, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you see Bone, his uh, his arm basically gets ripped off at the wrist. Alligator eats the emerald and he's just he ties it off with his uh, handkerchief that's around his neck. So he doesn't bleed out. It's great. Yes. And I I also think that the ending here or the, the final climactic scene here is it perfectly parallels the beginning novel where yes. she is she does like ask for Jack's help, but she doesn't get Jack's help. She does this all on her own, which is pretty awesome. Yes. Like you get this moment where she's she's got a knife and she it occurs to her to like try to recreate the opening moment from from the the you know from the novel she was writing and she throws the knife but Zolo catches it on a piece of wood. So there, right off the bat, you have well this could be how she gets him and she doesn't. And then Jack is trying to keep the crocodile who swallowed the stone from getting away. He's like, he's wrestling with his crocodile, but he sees that Joan is in trouble and he makes the choice to let the croc go and grab a nearby gun. And then it turns out to be empty. And that's what I'm talking about with like Zemeckis and his escalation. It's really, really well put together. Yeah. And then you get him trying to climb up the side of this thing and he can't do it. (laughs) Yeah. And he slides back down. And so Joan (laughs) has to save herself. Which she does. And there, like, there's the key to this movie is that she isn't saved by him. She saves herself. She sets Zolo on fire and then he plunges into a crocodile pit. And it's, it's fantastic. What a way to go for that guy. He gets his arm ripped <laughs> off. He gets lit on fire. He gets eaten by alligators at the end of it. It's been a bit of a day. <laughs> so my wife, my wife walked in at the end of this. Well, she, she saw me starting to watch it. So she saw the beginning apartment scene. She left. She came back into the room near the end of it. And she's like, is that the same woman? I said, yeah. She, she said, it's like you're watching She's All That, but in a jungle. And it was, <laughs> it was true. Like she was, I don't think I'd ever seen Kathleen Turner that hot. And my wife is a person who is not familiar with Kathleen Turner's filmography. She said, is that the woman from Baby Geniuses? And uh, unfortunately, yeah, but she's done so much more. That is hysterical. That. Yeah. If, if we're going late era, uh, later era Kathleen Turner, I'm, I'm definitely that's the lady from Serial Mom. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. V.I. Warshawski. Yeah. At the end, at the end, Jack tells Joan to go to the American consulate before jumping off the the fort wall after the croc and and the stone. And he has this moment. He says to her, and it's so good. And and Michael Douglas plays this perfectly. You're gonna be all right, Joan Wilder. Yeah.
always were. And it's such a good, it's because it's her story. It's not his. And it's, it's so well done. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it makes me think um, it's her story. It's so well done. The characterizations, the story is pretty tight. Uh, it made a ton of money. Let's not do that again. <laughs> well, I want to mention. Why don't we break everything? <laughs> Before that, I want to mention the very end where Joan is back in New York and hang, she writes the whole adventure up as a book and she changes the ending so they end up together. But as she arrives home, there's a sailboat parked in front of her building and Jack is on board with crocodile skin boots. And Jack and Joan have the two most 80s jackets I've ever seen as they kiss on the boat. And it's just... Like, because this movie is set, was set in the then-present day, as opposed to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a period piece, like, there is very much a strong sense of 80s-ness. I mean, right down to the saxophone playing over the closing credits. It's like, you know, it's... And, and the boat, by the way, is named Angelina, after the character from Joan's book, showing that Jack read the book. And it's great. It's, it's just... It's a terrific ending for a movie that didn't really need a sequel. It's not like it's not like they're Indiana Jones who by his vocation is going to go on other adventures because that is what he does. Here it's just this one. But naturally, Hollywood did what Hollywood does and said, "Get me another." And less than a year, less than 2 years later, excuse me, 20th Century Fox released The Jewel of the Nile. I'm coming. Hold your horse. Yeah. Ira, how'd you get this number? No, 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 no. No, I'm doing this one on my own. I got new partners. Jack Colton and Joan Wilder. We're romancing a new kind of stone called the Jewel of the Nile. I practically got it in my hands right now. The only thing stopping me is this big shot A-Rap who stole it. And is not too thrilled to part with it. Look out! But that's only the tip of the iceberg. How do you stop this thing? When we get out of this alive, I'm gonna kill you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a mistake. I didn't dislike this movie, apparently, as much as you guys did. Um, released in December of 1985, The Jewel of Nile saw all three principal actors, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito, return. Unfortunately, neither Robert Zemeckis nor writer, writer Diane Thomas did. And both were working for Amblin at the time. Zemeckis was on Back to the Future, and, and Thomas was working on a number of writing projects. Although the film does carry a dedication to her because she died shortly before its release. Instead, the film was directed by Louis Teague, director of Alligator, perhaps ironically, Cujo and Cat's Eye. And it was written by Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor, who are the writers of The Legend of Billie Jean, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, and Tim Burton's The Planet of the Apes. Starts off with a great song, too. <laughs> well, we'll get into this. There's a couple of things. First, the, 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 the cinematography for the second one was by Jan de Bont. Yeah. 
like a pre-diehard Jan de Bon. You could tell. It looks great. And and I, I have to say, I remember this movie way more than Romancing the Stone. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's better because it's not, obviously. But it was on HBO a ton in the late 80s when we first got HBO. So I saw it over and over again. <laughs> and it was just like, it was one of those movies. And like its predecessor, it opens with a scene out of one of Joan's novels, this one on a pirate ship. The faces of the main characters no longer concealed, but they are Jack and Joan. And the pirates, I don't know about if you guys, the pirates have a distinctly Mad Max vibe to them. It's like it's like oh, Mad totally. Max on the water, which I guess is Waterworld. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly Joan has, has, you know, they've been sailing around the world for six months. And they're now docked on the French Riviera. And Joan has started to become listless. She's suffering from writer's block. Uh, she's apparently three months behind on her latest book which I can't figure out because it's six months later and she gave them a book at the very end of the movie. And it's how, how is she already three months behind? How fast do they have her pumping these things out? Well, I think Joan has gambling problem. <laughs> you could ask the same thing to the producers of this movie. They were going by the same schedule, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't get a title drop. I mean, we do get title drops because there's a character with the, the well, we'll get into the, the jewel of the Nile, but what we get, and I, I gotta say, I love it we get the very rare title theme song drop, name drop in the movie when, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you do when the going gets tough? And guys, it's been a couple weeks since I've watched this movie and I have had it in my head every day for weeks. It just won't leave. Billy Ocean's The Going Gets Tough uh, I'll say that it, it's the one aspect of Jewel of the Nile that's better than its predecessor. There was a Romancing the Stone song uh, by Eddie Grant, but it's barely in the film did, due to a disagreement between Grant and the filmmakers, and it can be heard on the patio in Juan's house. On the other hand, that Billy Ocean song was everywhere in 1985, and it's amazing. I had never heard the song before before I saw this movie, but it was- Oh, it's a classic! Yeah, it was a standout for me. The other thing that I noticed in this one was before that, uh, you know, bef- the pre-credit scrawl, you get a Michael Douglas production. Romancing the Stone was as well. It has was a was a Michael Douglas. He he was the producer on both of them. I I knew that he produced it. I must have looked away when his name came up because it really struck me on Jewel of the Nile. He had obviously been producing stuff for a while before this, even before yeah. he became a big actor. He got an Oscar for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but right. Um, I had no idea that he had produced both of those movies until I saw a Michael Douglas production. And it's like, okay, now I, now I know why he really wanted to make this thing work. Well, yeah. And, and apparently it was, it was a struggle from all accounts. Kathleen Turner hated the script and they were constantly horse trading on what was going to go in, what was going to stay out. Um, Newsflash. Kathleen Turner was right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it it doesn't quite live up to the first one. Let's we'll just we'll just be straight about it. It's 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 not as good. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna launch into my pet peeves here. I'm gonna list them off and as we go <laughs> through the movie. I'm gonna call them out. Um, 
it did the classic thing where, oh, those characters you know and love, we're going to have them act completely differently for kind of no reason in the sequel. Well, it, not kind of no reason. It, it, the reason they act differently is because they need to make the sequel work. So it does that thing that sequels do where it unwinds the character development of the first film so it can go through it again. Yeah, I, I mean, that that is the reason. I, I mean, kind of no real story reason. Oh, no, clearly um, not. You know, like <laughs> motivated. And what's interesting to me is, and you, you know, in a million ways, you can feel that this was uh, chiefly written by, you know, men as opposed to having uh, a woman chiefly write the first one. What I find most interesting, though, is that this is still Joan's movie. So they didn't they didn't make her not the lead. Right. But they wrote it like men because Jack gets written like the shrill, the shrill girlfriend part. Where oh, he's just yeah. always annoying, and you're like, he's a big jerk. Cut yes. down a little slack, and he's just like, he's kind of an asshole the whole movie for almost no reason, overreacting yes. to everything. And then the, the sitcom, the bad sitcom writing side of it is Joan could easily go, oh wait, let me tell you this important thing that would <laughs> resolve all of our conflict that I'm keeping a secret for really no reason. Although we're gonna have two lines of dialogue later about it. Um, and it's just like, don't give me a romance, a romancing the stone sequel where Jack and Joan kind of hate each other. Like, yeah, I, 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 this is not what I want. I know. I agree a hundred percent. It's, it's, it falls into every classic sequel trap because they just, they, they have to, they, they, there's no real space to go and they have to make it by sort of undoing everything. And, and they make Jack an asshole and they make Joan a moron. But yeah. And it's, it's weird because. I think there is a good line about uh, I think her publisher says it at this party where she says something along the lines of the once the page ends in a romance novel, the romance doesn't end like, yes, now we're living the next page of that. And I think it is interesting to have this couple who, you know, came together through adventure and now they're not. Well, she says they're not really having an adventure. I mean, they've been on a boat for six months, which sounds right. pretty adventurous to me. But I can't. I number one, I can't figure out what the hell they're fighting about because yeah, you could literally go and do anything you want. And then on the other hand, while it is Joan Wilder's movie, the ending does the exact wrong thing and has Michael Douglas come to the rescue. And yeah. I think that's yeah. yes. one of the things that really sucks about this. And you can tell how bad her book is from that beginning scene as <laughs> she's just like, you should go. And then Michael Douglas's character or whoever it is in her new book, Jesse, the Jesse character is like, all right, see ya. Yeah. And, and she's like, oh, the character's like, oh, I have consumption. And oh, well, then, then it's OK. I watch it. It's I actually think that opening sequence is really good at illustrating that she has become disenchanted with everything and that that's showing through in her writing. Yeah. Comparing that to the opening sequence of the first film. Now, why she has become disenchanted, I'm not sure, but but it, it illustrates that very well. It does. You could have had the same you could have had the same plot happen and have them be the same characters. You just have to have a way that Jack wouldn't be able to go to Egypt with her, but you right. could do the same plot. You wouldn't have to make them hate each other. Exactly. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. It's not the, the story is not the problem. The, the, it's the problem is how they execute it. Yeah. At a signing event, Joan is approached by Omar 
played by Greek actor Spiros Focus, who is the ruler of a North African country, and she he invites her to come and write his biography. And he is just dripping with Omar Sharif charm, and Joan falls for it because they need to make Joan stupid in order for the plot to work. Because even the, like, you'd have to be a moron to not think this guy is, like, some kind of, you know, dictator. Like, it, it's... By the way, what country is Omar the ruler of? It seems like Egypt, but without the monuments... It's like some fictional country on the Upper Nile. I, I, I don't know, but it, it's it, it's just like generic Middle East. Yeah, it's a terrible setup. And and it's one of the, you know, the, the callback to the first movie where she is really reluctant to go to save her sister to another country. And this time she meets a guy and within five minutes, she's like, yeah, I'll go. I'll go to your country with you and hang out at your castle or whatever and write your write your memoirs that you want me to write. Like it's so yeah. um and and they spend the first 20 minutes basically stripping away all of the first movie. Like it, it it's not as fast as like Alien 3 does to the achievements in Aliens, but it's pretty close. You know, Jack and Joan split up, the boat gets blown up, Joan is made dumb, Jack is made into a douche. And it just, yeah, it's... <laughs> and the fan favorite villain from the first one becomes a friend for absolutely no reason as well. Uh, absolutely. We, we I've been for this shit. Absolutely. Or three, yeah. yeah. The funniest line in that in the movie, the absolute funniest line is that he's, like, Ralph has apparently tracked them down after getting out of jail. And I love that Jack greets Ralph like he's an old friend. He goes, hey, Cardinal, Cardinal, Columbia, right? Like he was a guy he met at, like he was like another couple he met at Sandals. Like it's it's hysterical. Like, dude, the last time you saw that guy, he was trying to kidnap you. And it's not like he just saw him in the street. The guy pops out of a fucking dumpster, (laughs) as one does. Yeah. (laughs) How long was he hiding in there? How long was he? I bet he could have just as easily sat on the steps next to that motorcycle. (laughs) Uh, Jack and Ralph learn that Omar has stolen the jewel of the Nile, and they decide to team up to find it as well as, I guess, get Joan back, although that's a little unclear. And, And in Omar's capital, Joan starts to get suspicious, but not nearly fast enough because the movie needs her to be a little slow on the uptake. When you have machine guns, you know, you have soldiers machine gunning graffiti. That's not a sign of a healthy society, Joan. Yeah, most people don't have fighter jets parked outside of their home either. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, they spend so much time in that fighter jet in like later in the movie. They spend so much time in it. And it's just it's like, oh, my God. Uh, I can't wait to talk about that F-16 scene, but I think one of the funnier (laughs) parts of her being so stupid is when she is in the compound and she hears a scream and he, and she's like, what was that? And he says, oh, I have a cat. Yeah. And she says, oh, I have a cat too, but not if that cat was on that boat. (laughs) And, and, and to be clear, like Joan in, in Romancing the Stone is not a stupid character. She's inexperienced for the situation she's in, but she's not dumb. Here, she's dumb, and it makes yeah. a difference. It's it's a big difference. At the, at the top of Romancing the Stone, when she asks which bus is going to Cartagena, and the guy just straight up lies to her, like, she doesn't speak the language. She right. has no idea. The fact that she falls for his lie, and she has no idea to, 
no reason. She has no idea who he that he is the bad guy. It's just a person. She's just asking someone, is this the bus to there? Why wouldn't she take them at their word? No one knows why she's there except the guy who's following her. So you could see where someone's like, oh, Joan is a character who gets misled. And you're like, well, yes, in some ways, but not like this. You're, you're I would right. get misled under, you know, in the under the circumstances of the first movie. But I know that when you park an F-16 outside your palace, I know that you're probably a dictator. <laughs> but we are discussing a woman who in this movie says Jack would never die without telling me. And <laughs> she also... When, when uh, she's discussing how to get out of a prison, she says, yeah, one of the characters in my book used a nail file to, to cut the window out. And he says, how long did that take? And she says, two pages. <laughs> Joan does learn that Omar is, you know, is not a good guy. Although, again, like I said, not nearly fast enough. Uh, after seeing Omar and his special effects man try to fake a miracle. And, and she finds his military plans to take over the Middle East. Uh, by the way, the special effects man is the classic example of a character. The, the actor just is too memorable for the level of character he's playing because he's got this thick Cockney accent and it's like his lines are burned into my brain. Like, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt, burn. I said it wouldn't hurt. And it's like, I, I don't want to attempt to do a Cockney accent because I will do it badly. But like... I shouldn't remember that guy. Like, he shouldn't be the guy I remember. I made rock and roll stars into gods. Think <laughs> what, what I can, I can do, do for you. For you. Yeah, oh I, I didn't think about it. But yes, those are the lines I must remember <laughs> in this movie. He's wearing the white suit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and even with that character, um, he is a perfect illustration of just bad motivations and things that shouldn't happen. Because at the end, there's... Uh, and I, I don't need to get into the part of the end, but there's like a big to do and the special effects guy is supposed to be doing something uh, for him, you know, uh, you know, at, in front of a, a big crowd of people. And he's late. And the special effects guy's like, will you tell him I'll start the show without him? And I'm like, he's <laughs> the bloodthirsty dictator who's hired you to like pull this thing off. Like, you would never say that. I don't care how like prima donna of a special effects artist you are. He's <laughs> got to get to the next dictator, you know, on the next set. <laughs> he's, doing, he's got the Rolling Stones and he, you know, on their Steel Wheels tour. So he's got to get ready for that. <laughs> Time is money with this guy. <laughs> uh, they, Of course, they, they, they capture Joan be, in, almost immediately and they put her in a cell with uh, someone else because apparently they don't have two cells in your in, in this ruthless dictator ruled country but they put her in the cell with al jahara a religious leader who goes by the title the jewel of the nile so there's no precious gem in the movie it's this guy that's the twist and I, I can't decide if it's great or stupid i think it's kind of cool but it doesn't really work like it's I think it's cool. I don't think they did it well. No. Yeah. I think they could have revealed it in a much cooler, much better way. They And they really like drag it out with how long both Jack and Ralph still think it's a, a jewel, like a literal jewel. Yeah. Well, she doesn't tell Jack. It goes. So it's like late in the movie. Which yeah. Is, yeah. And there's it's a problem with yeah. that, too. Yeah. And yeah. Al Jahara is played by Avner Eisenberg, who is honestly one of the best parts of the film. He's like a cross between Chance from being there and Balky from Perfect Strangers. <laughs> and he wasn't even an actor yeah. right, before this. I, he was a performer. Yeah. Yeah. He was a performer. Uh, 
what he studied uh, I think he was mime, a I think in Paris as well. Yeah, he, and he I think uh, not too. I think the years after this or the concurrent with it, he had his Broadway what like a one man kind of review thing. Yeah. And, and I looked up you can you could have taken a class. He He's yeah. doing classes like you can go up to Maine and learn uh, clowning and, and uh, I think eccentric performance, he calls it from. Oh, him. I, sh- and I, I should like, do that. I, I was like, uh, I should totally you know, do that. That's on my birthday list. I'm like, <laughs> just getting my trip to Maine. Joan and Aldrahara decide to escape so they can stop Omar from declaring himself Emperor of the Nile at the holy city of Kadir. Which, as I as I say that description, the dumber it sounds. Like I actually, the words come out of my mouth, and I'm like, this movie's so dumb. And I, I just, uh, oh god. So we have this middle section of the movie where Jack and Ralph have teamed up and Joan and the Jewel have. And and I will admit, I think there's kind of a fun dynamic there, like that you have, like there's a bit where Jack and Ralph are trying to get into the palace to see Joan and Jack introduces Dave DeVito as Mr. Fatouche of the U.S. Embassy. Take it away, Mr. Fatouche. And that name has lived red free in my head for 35 years. <laughs> you have the uh, gmail address fatouche at gmail.com yeah under fatouche that's the- <laughs> uh, another memorable part of this interaction between michael douglas and danny devito's characters are when they get off of the plane and they are instantly surrounded by men on camels blasting a boom box <laughs> was 1985 everybody blasted boom boxes in 1985 that's just how it worked yeah oh we we shortly thereafter get our our houdini the freaks come out at night needle drop yeah the needle drops are the best thing about this whole movie uh maybe except for uh you know um the jewel himself <laughs> yes it's quite funny but like they like they actually do us an interesting thing of like oh we're gonna take joan we're going to take Joan and Jack and split them apart, and we're going to pair them with someone interesting to play off of. And then almost immediately, they undo that and have Jack ba- Jack and Joan back together and start bickering because Jack, Joan, and the Jewel escape in an F-16 fighter jet that they never take off the ground. They just drive it around and shoot stuff. And I got to is there a message underneath of, like, this piece of American military equipment destroying this? like country i'm like oh my god that's where we are in 1985 it's like it's this is like a movie produced by the reagan administration so this plane actually almost caused an international incident where obviously they they couldn't uh bring in a real jet for this so they had the prop guy build this f-16 but apparently uh israel saw it on their radars and i guess there was almost an international incident where fox had to go to the u.s embassy and Everybody had to get along and realize this thing can't go off the ground. It's not a real plane. Don't worry. That's amazing. I love this scene with the F-16 just because it is a whole lot of fun. Michael Douglas screaming, this is not Space Invaders, and then starts shooting stuff and says, this is Space Invaders. It's yeah, And it ran out of quarters when the bullets run out. Yeah, there's some fun stuff. <laughs> it goes That's on a, a little long, but it's, it's again, the... Part of the problem is the the middle of the movie just sags. Oh yeah, that's there. There it is. Uh, Ralph ends up falling in with the Sufis who were rebelling against Omar. And I, I too, I watched both of these movies with my wife. And during this movie, I, I turned to her and said, uh, "Honey, is this a little bit racist?" Uh, 
And my wife, her answer was, well, they have Danny DeVito in a turban. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they use some uh, some epithets, uh, racial epithets, uh, and it's kind of presented as like a cool punchline. Yeah. We are in a realm in this series. Um, it's They're not just older movies, but they're movies about uh you know white people adventuring in other areas of the world it's going to get a little racist but i think this one goes even a little a little beyond some of uh, definitely beyond what what might have just existed underlying romancing the stone or, or raiders um it, and it seems to do so kind of gleefully which is disappointing but again it's it's against character type because you have to assume that Danny DeVito is a very well-traveled character based on his profession and what we saw in the first movie and he's you know in costume with all of these folks and his line of I'm at a goddamn beanie convention. I might end up going home with a rug. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Who are you even saying this yeah. to? Yeah, it, it is. He's talking directly to the audience looking for a laugh. It just doesn't make sense. Oh, God, this movie's so strange. It's so strange. <laughs> it's not even like you would say that, oh, there's racism from a character who would be that. And that he's being presented as someone who would be from a place of ignorance. So therefore, you, you it's like, oh, we're not endorsing that. It's... It's playing it's playing for laughs and it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you got Danny DeVito in a turban and walking on hot coals. There you go. Uh, I also want to say though about Omar, one other thing about him, uh, <laughs> and it undercuts the movie, is he is such an incompetent villain. Everything he tries to do fails. So he keep it keeps him from being a real threat of any kind. Like everything he does is just a complete and utter failure. Like, the guy couldn't manage an automat. He is just absolutely an idiot. And it's just like, oh, well, there's... Yeah. What this movie is missing is a great lead henchman. Yes. If he would have had a great lead henchman who would acknowledge that, yes, Omar's an idiot, but I'm the best that there is, and then they had to go up against, really, this number two as the big bad guy, that would have been a much better, much different totally. movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they encounter a Nubian tribe and Jack has to fight one of the sons in order because the son wants to marry Joan. Uh, and, and, and just like it, uh, you know, we have a late dance sequence, just like, uh, you know, the one at the uh, in, in Romancing the Stone, um, except this one has boobs. Yeah, it's it's 25 percent less romantic and 300 uh, percent more problematic uh, <laughs> yes. in how they tr deal with uh, everything. I mean the whole the whole sequence coming in here is is pretty ouchy. Yeah, it's unnecessary. Yeah. Well, there it is. Yeah. yeah, it's just not necessary. And it's I guess it's supposed to they re, re, you know they rekindle their romance or whatever. I, I have to call out because as they're uh, you know she has been taught to dance by the uh, you know African women. Uh, you know, we get that trope alert, but she so she's dancing, shaking her booty in front of Michael Douglas, and turns around. To like they're face to face, and I I swear to God, if you look, he looks her straight in the crotch. <laughs> he is not. He does not even look at, at her eyes. He just goes boom to the crotch. He eventually looks back up to her eyes, but I could not believe it. I rewound. I made sure that I wasn't insane. I made my wife verify this. She's like, oh no, he's looking directly at her crotch. And I'm like, okay, all right, <laughs> like good wow. Um, like the, the eye line got messed up there. Wow. Now I have to go back and look at that. I didn't notice that. Now you've made me rewatch part of this movie. <laughs> 
The whole fight scene that leads up to that is also one of the worst fight scenes that you could oh, yeah. put in a movie. It doesn't seem like either one is really trying to win. It looks like one is trying to work out just by lifting Michael Douglas onto his shoulders continuously. Admittedly, probably a good workout. <laughs> yeah. And then Michael Douglas has to uh, cheat to win. And it's a it's a really uninteresting way to win that fight. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, and I would say in general, the, this is a bigger budget movie and there might be technically more action than in Romancing the Stone, but it's almost all worse action. Yeah. You know, there's nothing that's, you know, the truck going over the falls into the river and they're, you know, going out of it. You just don't get cool stuff. The, the F-16 sequence, you know, being a little, you know, that at least is like fun and interesting. Um, it's the only scene that's fun and interesting. Yeah, yeah. The rest of it's boring. They have a train ride and the train ride's boring. The ending oh, yeah, is boring. The t- Most of the rest of the movie Honestly, is the train ride was so boring, I forgot about it. I was like, oh yeah, there's a train ride. I forgot about that. One neat stunt with the pipes that probably looked cool, but we get a very, very quick shot of it that goes away real quick. They could have done so much more with that train ride. They had, what, almost three times the budget of the first one. Yeah, but this is what, like $25 million and like $84? Um, that's 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 a fair budget. $75 million today, about. Which is amazing now that movies, call, you know, that, that last Indiana Jones movie cost, you know, like $300 million. I mean, it's insane what movies cost. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Um, Jack, Jonah, and the Jewel go to Kadir to stop Omar, and they're immediately captured because nobody in this movie is competent. Uh, Omar plans an elaborate death for Jack and Joan, which I at first was like, oh, come on. Like they're suspended over this pit with rats chewing on one of the ropes and acid burning the others. But Joan explains that it's from one of her novels, and I was kind of like, oh, well, okay, I'll allow it. Like, okay, that he's doing a bit from their novels, I'll buy. Yeah, and then uh, when Danny DeVito walks in, you get that uh, call back to the Tarzan line because yeah. he says something about, oh, hey, it's Tarzan. It's Tarzan. <laughs> Tarzan. Tarzan. But he doesn't say Tarzan. Tarzan. <laughs> Um, and you know they help with uh, yeah, they escape with uh, with Ralph's help, and they're just in time to stop Omar. And you get uh, what's weird is you get this little bit of Indiana Jones esque magic at the end, where Al Jahara walks through the flames on stage, the actual flames, not the uh, not the 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 flames from the uh, from the special effects guy, and he proves that he is the jewel of the Nile, and he brings peace to the Middle East for all time. Was it really real fire, though? Because that did not look at all like real fire to me. Yeah, the optical was lacking. <laughs> that was rough. Yeah. Yeah. It was supposed to be. He was supposed to be performing a miracle. <laughs> I mean, it didn't look like a miracle, but, you know, I mean, we can't all spend $300 million de-aging Harrison Ford, guys. Um <laughs> Of course, uh, you know, we need to have some kind of victory for for Jack and Joan. So we marry them off at the end. You know, I guess that's a step forward, but it doesn't really feel like it. Like, it's like to me, it's like if they went from A to B in Romancing the Stone, Jewel the Nile, they just kind of go from B to B again. Like, it's just there's no step C. There's no there's no advancement of the character. It's just it's it's Jaws 2. It's another shark. They're just they're just fighting the same battle over again. Just not as well. Chris, Jack, he's no longer afraid of commitment. He he wants to marry her. And, oh, wait, yes, they never said he was afraid of commitment. They never really even referenced it. No. <laughs> they set it up. He <laughs> wanted to just 
sail around with her and that was the problem and now at the end they pretend like she wanted to get married and he didn't and that was the problem and i'm just like oh my goodness like maybe this is that was probably an onset rewrite draft drift (laughs) i don't know like who uh, just like oh man every series except for when harry met sally every series we have at least one film that i'm angered that i had to watch for this podcast and jewel and i'll takes that uh this time hopefully it'll be the only one i i you know I hope. it committed one of those film sins where it it got boring to yeah. me you can't have an adventure movie an action movie that gets boring the first one i watched it and i was engrossed the whole time the second one took me three times to finish. Yeah. It took me three times to finish this film. I will I will say that it was very successful uh, commercially. It did well at the box office. Um, and there were plans. There was talk of a third one in, in as early as 1987. There were plans for a sequel entitled The Crimson Eagle. And that was to be set in Thailand. Uh, and what's what's kind of interesting about the whole thing is the story was apparently going to jump ahead many years and have Jack and Joan on vacation with their teenage children who are then then they are blackmailed into stealing a priceless statue. And I would be curious to know how they would shoehorn Ralph into that story as well. <laughs> but like they were going to like jump ahead 15 years. Ralph is the father of one of the kids like uh, boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Ralph is the father of one of the kids, oh. and that would have been real interesting. <laughs> that That's a whole other movie. Um, in 1989, uh, Douglas Turner and DeVito did reunite for an unrelated movie, the black comedy The War of the Roses. I love The War of the Roses, yeah. I've never seen it. Oh, it's fantastic. I haven't seen it in a while, so... You know, don't totally hold me to it, but it's it's great. I'll check it out. They did continue to develop a third Romancing the Stone for on and off through the 90s and the early aughts. There was apparently a later script entitled Racing the Monsoon, but it never got off the ground. And eventually sort of the talk turned to doing a remake of Romancing the Stone with new actors, which is honestly an even worse idea. And thankfully, that seems to have fallen off a cliff as well. I think they were going to do a TV series based on it as well. Of course. Of course. They're going to do a TV series based on everything 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 gets turned into a tv series now yeah not even a real tv series like tales of the gold monkey it's just an extended movie over six to eight parts yeah or bring them back alive (laughs) which has the greatest act out in television history i watched it again today i I just pulled up that act out and watched it again act out yeah I just watched that act out again today because I love it so much for for any listeners who who haven't heard our uh episode three the act out is a monkey pulling a gun on a man who is taking a bath. And it, and and the final <laughs> shot before you go to commercial is he he's sitting in the bathtub and Bruce Lockner, Brock Lightner just puts his hands up, you know, as if, you know, <laughs> I, you, you got me, monkey. <laughs> and nothing has made me want to come back after commercial more in my oh, life. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Oh. Uh, one more thing on this movie. Well, really two more things. Um, so first off, I, I think that this, it was the first sequel that Michael Douglas ever did, and it took a very long time to do another sequel after this. He's only done two sequel. well, he's only done sequels for two film series after this. You guys know what those Ooh. sequels might be? Right. Well, Ant-Man's going to be one of them. The, Ant- the two Ant-Man Ant-Man's movies. one of them. He did, he did the Ant-Man sequels, but there's one other sequel that he did in his career. Oh, goodness. Oh, wait. Uh, is it Wall Street? It is. Yeah. Wall yes. Street. 
Money never sleeps. Honestly, I was gonna for a second I was gonna throw out Black Rain Two, but there was no <laughs> Black Rain Two. No. Uh, the other question I had for you was. Do you think you would have liked Jewel of the Nile more if it was a standalone film versus being a sequel to Romancing the Stone? Maybe a little. No, I because I, I think I would have hated it less, but I don't know that I would have. I, I still like it would still have been a slog. I still wouldn't have liked the characters uh, behaving because even in the context of forgetting who they were in the first movie, I just felt that they didn't even act right for inside this movie. No, I, 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 it wouldn't have been a good movie, but at least it wouldn't have been taking characters you really liked in Romancing the Stone and kind of screwing them True. up. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it angered me how stupid these characters acted because we had seen them in that first film. Yeah. And so I think that if, if they had, you know, put this as a standalone movie with different characters, I... Surely I wouldn't have been as angry, but it wouldn't have made it less boring. Yeah. Yeah, it does kind of, the more I think about it, the more it does remind me of some of the later Lethal Weapon movies. It feels in that vein. Like, after two. Oh, yeah. Like, you know. Very hard to defend, number four. <laughs> uh, God, it's been ages since I've seen it. So, I mean, you know, again, we have one really good movie this week and one not-so-good sequel. Very kind of classic sequel mistakes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, I think that that sort of wraps it up for today. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank um, you. Yeah, we really it was Absolutely, really great. Guys. And and can you tell us where we can find the Force Five podcast out there in the world? Well, the good news is wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can also listen to Force Five. You can find uh yeah, anywhere you get your podcast, force5podcast.com or iTunes, Spotify, any anywhere you listen. And I'm on Twitter at force5pod. I'm on Instagram at Force Five Podcast and wherever else social media is, that's where I am. And it's all me. It's a one man show. So if you're if you're talking to me on Twitter, it's me. Next week on Get Me Another Indiana Jones, we journey to the land of opera and gelato. That's right. We are off to Italy for not one, not two, but three films from your the hunter from the future director and Quentin Tarantino character namesake. Antonio Margariti. So join us as we explore Hunters of the Golden Cobra, The Ark of the Sun God, and Jungle Raiders. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, it's going to be a fun oh, one. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a ball. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Get Me Another Pod. And if you like the show, tell your friends. Tell your enemies, tell your local religious leader with a deceptive sounding title, and join us next time when the going gets rough as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. Look at these snappers, will ya? Look at those snappers, Ralph. Look at those snappers, will ya? Thank you.